Trail and Ultra Runners, what is going on? What's happening? Welcome to another episode of the Coopcast. As always, I am your humble host, Coach Jason Coop, and on this episode of the podcast is all about steep running and hiking and how to make the most out of your efforts out there on the trails. Every single week, I have athletes ask me, how do I become a better uphill runner and when do I switch between running and hiking and is one of the most common questions in trail and ultra running and one that we've also discussed on the podcast before, but we can never learn enough about this subject. So on the podcast today, I have the esteemed Roger Crom, PhD and Professor Emeritus at the University of Colorado Boulder. Professor Crom's contributions to the biomechanics community would take a whole lifetime's worth of podcasts to actually discuss, and I'm very honored that he would at least sit down with me for one single podcast to discuss some of these topics. He has contributed immensely to our understanding of running biomechanics, the oxygen and energy cost of running, and how biomechanics affect human performance. Roger has built a legacy that will extend far beyond his teaching years by not only helping to pioneer the field of biomechanics itself even before that field existed, but with the University of Colorado's Biomechanics Lab, which is one of the most sought after laboratories in the entire world for biomechanics research. Roger is also a paid consultant to Nike and contributed greatly to their Breaking Two project, providing important research and counsel on the effort. And in the show notes, I will link to a few of the papers that Roger was recently involved in that assisted in that particular effort. However, most importantly for trail and ultra running, Roger's Biomechanics Lab built a steep treadmill that goes up to a 100% grade, which is kind of unfathomable for most runners. And they did that in order to study uphill running after being inspired by none other than the incomparable Killian Jornet. As a personal note, I took some undergraduate courses from Roger and he provided some technical advisement to the first edition of my book, which I am forever grateful for. You'll appreciate Roger's expertise, his passion for the sport, and his passion for performance, as well as how he can communicate complex topics in an understandable way. All right, I'm going to get right out of the way. Let's get right into it. Here's my conversation with the incredible Roger Crom. How's a semi-retired or retired life been treating you before we get into it? Really good. Yeah, I... uh... Um, I've been getting out on more skiing and, uh, uh, but I took on another project of, uh, my wife and I bought a, a, a new house. So, uh, we're, uh, renovating that and overseeing that. So, uh, I guess, but yeah, life's good. I, I, I feel like I can keep up with things, you know, it's like, oh, well, I can do that later this week. And, and then I actually get it done later this week instead of like, <laughs> just disappearing uh, into oblivion so well you were busy throughout the course of your career i mean not only were you teaching but you already you had like a graduate you know student army it seemed like like pumping out publications and then the lab and then your consulting work with nike all on top of that i mean i can imagine how projects can get shoved to years down years down the road with all that going on yeah actually i have a i have the big one that uh i hope to take on uh is uh, writing a book. So, uh, you know, some form of a book, I don't know if it'll be a, a book book or a ebook or a, but, uh, yeah, 
sign me up for the newsletter when it when it releases because i'll be first right. on, i'll be first on the list to buy it you're the second or third podcast guest that i've had in the last month that's work that has is it is working on a book or has it kind of like in the pipeline yeah yeah i i think i want to write to uh write it for my 18 year old self like some <laughs> a kid who likes to run who likes science and like uh you know and, and then the whole world opens up. It's like, whoa, I can do this for a career. Wow. This is pretty cool. So I, I like the fact that you have tracked your mile PR for how many years now in the bio <laughs> that you sent me that I read right before this, how many years not to date yourself, yeah. Roger, but I think we're past pretentiousness. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, I'm 59. So it's, uh, and I ran my fastest mile when I was 18. So yeah, it's what 41 years. Wow. So, uh, yeah, I I don't track it every year. I just was like, huh, I wonder how much I've slowed down, and then I figured it out. And it's it's kind of it's maybe a good lesson for your listeners actually, and that is that you if you don't use something, you do lose it, and and it's it's inexorably slowly and small, you know, like like a hundredth of a second every day, I slow down in a mile, and and. You know, you're like, well, where did it go? What did I do? It's it's not what you did; it's what you didn't do, and that's maintain speed work and and you know turnover and and uh, I think that's the main thing. I so. mean, you have this you have this like really long academic career that kind of started with running, right? I mean, you're a runner in yeah. high school, and you 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 know you've mentioned to me in class and also in your bio that you kind of take your, you took your first lactate measurements, you know, as a, as a teenager in your <laughs> mom's laundry room and things like that. So you've always been interested in locomotion, I guess is what I'm saying. And not just human locomotion, but also animal locomotion of which you've researched a ton, correct? Right. Yeah. That was what, uh, really all I did before I, uh, well, mostly what I did before I came to Colorado. So, um, I've studied a, a wide variety of animals. So I, I, I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and uh, Saturdays was uh, they had these classes, sort of extra classes at the Natural History Museum, and uh, and we had a great zoo. So uh, yeah, I've been fascinated with animals. It, it was really hard for me to choose when I went to college which science to study because I love mechanics and I love biology, and uh, I did really well in chemistry and. Uh, and biomechanics as a word and as a field really was just, just barely beginning. So it was, it wasn't like I could major in biomechanics. That wasn't a thing. <laughs> and, uh, but I, I guess I tended, tended more to the, uh, once we got out of physics mechanics, once we got, went into, you know, quantum and relativity and stuff, I, I kind of like lost interest. It wasn't any, it wasn't real for me. I loved mechanics. And then, so then I drifted more to biology and physiology, which is obviously pretty real and uh, we all experience. So, and, and more recently and more, more recently for you is like the last 20 years, I, I'm, uh, by my calculations, yeah. um, there's been a really heavy run focus on things and yeah. you, you yeah, yeah, goes without saying you and your lab have, have had your fingers in like a number of different 
pies in the running community from footwear to running economy to, uh, I mean, I had uh, Alina Grabowski on my podcast a few weeks ago talking about prosthetics and, and, and run yep. performance and she's fantastic. And, and now most recently, since this is primarily a trail and ultra running podcast, you have this steep treadmill in your lab, this one of a kind steep treadmill that if anybody were to have ever, were to ever seen it, they would look at it and go, "Oh my gosh, I cannot believe that this is like a training tool." But it's something that you that you and you and your colleagues in your lab, you guys built, right? You guys built this this steep treadmill specifically for the purposes of research. And so I think to start to paint the picture, like describe the treadmill for us. Okay, uh, yeah, we 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 uh, the the cutting edge of science. You often have to build your own tools. Like they just don't exist. If you wanted to, um, you know, at the crazy extreme, if you want to study the atom, you need to make a particle collider, right? And those are a little bigger scale than making a treadmill. But um, the steepest treadmill you can find is I think made by um, Nordic track, yeah. a commercial one. Yep. And, uh, and most of the gyms or, or home, home treadmills measure things in percent uh, percent grade, but, uh, that gets kind of, it gets like a weird number. So we go with uh, degrees because 45 degrees is a hundred percent by the way, grade is calculated. And, and that everybody's like, what do you mean? A hundred percent, like straight up. I'm like, no, no, not ha- straight up. So, so anyhow, uh, there's a little bit, it may be an interesting story for your crowd. And that is that, um, uh, Killian Jornet was giving a lecture at the Boulder Running Company, and uh, and Alina Grabowski and I went to to hear him, and uh, and it was very you know I don't know if you've heard him or met him, but yeah. he's he's contagious, you know yeah. he's 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 a really intriguing guy, and uh, and I elbowed Alina, I said you know we really ought to study this trail running stuff because we she and I run together and and uh, and we had. Uh, we had never done anything specifically for really uh, for trail or steep stuff. So, um, and we hadn't, we had an old treadmill that we had made ourselves um, because we, uh, my lab, but uh, we made the first force measuring treadmill, a treadmill that uh, you can measure the the ground reaction force underneath the feet with every step. And uh, we had to make this treadmill super light and pretty small. So, uh, so we had that around and, uh, we have this stuff called 80, not 80, 20. We have it, uh, it's Unistrut. It's the stuff that it's the metal, uh, metal tubing that holds up stop signs or, or no parking signs. Everybody's kind of familiar with it, but it turns out it's a great, um, Lego for, for big kids. And, uh, we use it all the time. We can make things very quickly and bolt it together and make a frame. So that's what we, we made a frame that uh, we could uh, lift and then bolt in place at whatever angle we wanted. It, it goes to, well, it could go to 90 if you wanted to, um, it could overhang, but, but we're not doing the uh, climbing locomotion right now. Um, <laughs> and, uh, oh, I should give credit. One of the, the students who worked on that was uh, Mandy Ortiz, who um, was a university of Colorado student, but, um, more relevant. She was on the, uh, uh, United States mountain running team. I think she was junior. Yeah. She may have been world champion as a junior. Uh, and her mom's a pretty famous, uh, ultra runner too. She's won Pike's peak like some crazy number of times. Yeah. And she's, 
I don't want to guess her age, but she, you know, her daughter's in med school. So she's, she's, uh, <laughs> she's a pretty impressive lady. Um, anyhow, Mandy, Mandy and I put that together. We, we made this frame out of, uh, uh, of, uh, Unistrut and, uh, uh, we started to run into a couple of problems. I, I guess I'm start. I started to realize why commercial treadmills only go to a certain uh, degree, and, and and that is uh, first one was uh, was friction. Uh, so when it gets too steep, your feet are slipping, and so we had to put um, uh, adhesive sandpaper on it. Uh, I had another student, uh, Brian Pham, who's a longboarder. And he said, oh, you want this stuff called vicious tape, which is <laughs> is really, really sticky and really aggressive sandpaper. And we put that on the treadmill so that we wouldn't s- slip. What you're describing is this people like literally their foot is slipping oh, down yeah. off of the treadmill because of the incline. Exactly. So you're basically yeah. putting grippy sandpaper on the bottom of it or on the yeah. belt. Yeah. You, you, you couldn't you, you couldn't <laughs> go at the angle. And, and then then the second thing we noticed uh, after we weren't slipping was that at, at steeper angles, the, um, your body weight is pulling the, the belt backwards, right? As you, as you step on this thing and the motor on a treadmill is designed to make it go. It's not designed to slow it down. And so, um, we realized we had to put a load on the treadmill on the motor. And so we have a, um, an extra like belt pulley and we hang weights, uh, over the over the uh, belt pulley, so that uh, the motor has something that to work against, and it can maintain a constant speed. So, um, before any of your listeners say, "Oh, I want to make a super steep treadmill," <laughs> um, you, you yeah, sure, you can put sticky tape on it or sticky sandpaper. That's safe. But um, if you take a regular treadmill and you incline it too steeply, um, the, you'll ruin the motor. The motor will uh, will well, it, it, it just won't work. So uh, it, you have to figure out a way to provide a resistance to the, uh, to the, to the motor if you, if you do want to try this. So don't DIY it unless you have a biomechanics team behind you assisting yeah. you with the process is the, yeah. is the, is or, the end result. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I don't want to discourage DIY. Uh, uh, um, Nicola Giovanelli, who was the second student to work on the project, um, who, who you should have on your podcast, he'd be great. Um, Nicola, um, he bought a treadmill off of eBay in Italy for like, uh, 50 euros and, and he modified that one. So, uh, you can, you can get, you know, just don't take your brand new January 1st Christmas present, uh, $5,000 treadmill and try it, uh, get, get a cheap treadmill and, and, uh, and try to modify it. Sure, <laughs> I, I actually did have Nicola on my uh, on my podcast as episode sixty one for the listeners. Okay, oh, he's fan- he's fantastic. We geeked out on polls as you can as you can imagine. But yeah. what you're telling me, I did not know the origin of this story. Um, yeah. As many conversations as you, as you and I have had, uh, Killian being the, mm-hmm. the 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 origin of. The steep yeah. treadmill. You are literally going to a presentation by Killian Jornet. Of course it's Killian, right? right? In Boulder, out of all things. Yes. And you decide that you're going to start studying trail running. And one of the mechanisms you needed to study trail running was a treadmill that exceeded the, the capacity or the capabilities of the current treadmills that were out there. Yeah, exactly. I, <laughs> I, I really got, got hooked on the vertical kilometer and, and that, um, uh, which, 
which is really not, well, it's, it's, they seem to be held in conjunction with ultra races, but um, it's a, it's a totally different energy system. And uh, yeah, but, but it's, you know, I, I've been a scientist. Well, I guess I've always been a scientist, really. Children are scientists too. And, uh, um, you know, the idea that it's a kilometer, like, oh yeah, a thousand meters, every, you know, that, right. that's a nice, uh, nice metric for, uh, and, uh, um, and that there are different places in the world where that are better or worse. And, and, you know, you said it was been about 20 years since I really focused on running. And that's when I moved to Boulder to the university of Colorado. And, uh, and it was certainly an attractive aspect of it that, that I knew I'd have really good subjects and, um, and, but more so that in my personal life, I could be in the mountains and you can't, you can't really live here and run without thinking about uphill. I mean, it's, it's, it's inevitable, right? You know, it's the challenge, it's the beauty. And um, uh, so, so we have done a whole series of studies on uphill running. And I appreciate the way that you have approached the problem because when I first started working with trail and ultra runners, a lot of the practice that we used, a lot of what we were doing with trail and ultra runners was extrapolated from research that was done in the traditional endurance domains and particularly like the 10 kilometer and and the marathon. Mm -hmm. But the way that your, your lab kind of approaches, like let's just understand what the cost of transport is. Let's understand these very basic biomechanical concepts of uphill and downhill running and then see if we can translate and then and then I could take that as a coach I could take those things and try to translate it into training prescriptions and one of the things that you first kind of started out with was let's just find the most I'm going to use the word efficient and it's probably a bastardized way to 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 use it for talking to a biomechanist but what's the most efficient way to climb a certain distance, like what grade is the best one to pick if you had a number of different choices and you guys use the steep treadmill in this, uh, in this research. Yeah, absolutely. So, so, uh, this is something that everybody thinks about. Uh, well, not if you're, if you stick on the trails, but if you run kind of off trail and, and other animals think about it, they don't know if they think about it, but they, they act upon it is uh, what's the best angle to go up this hill? Should I go straight up this hill? Should I, uh, and, and it's, it's probably a lot up here, different personalities. Um, initial, your initial guest is like, let's just get it over with and go straight up the fall <laughs> line. right? Um, and then other people are more methodical and say like, no, I'll zigzag up and, um, and, uh, and, and maintain a, maybe I should maintain an angle that I can run at rather than, taking it so steep that I have to climb or walk up it. And, um, it was pretty abstract. Um, but, but a, a scientist named Alberto Minetti had looked at, uh, and I think he had done it. He looked at more, uh, the trails in Europe for where people use donkeys and horses and so on. And they have a certain incline. They, they, they all kind of converged on, Hey, this is the best incline for, uh, uh, hauling stuff up to our mountain hut with a, with a donkey. Um, and other scientists, biologists have looked at, um, I, I've been thinking about following up on this. Uh, they looked at tracks uh, on uh, presumably in the snow uh, that, that animals take up a hill, right? Mm-hmm. Do they, 
uh, did they go up, do small animals go up a different angle? Do big animals go up straight up the hill? Anyhow, there's still plenty of questions to, to pursue there in a more biological setting. But, but um, yeah, Nicola and uh, uh, Mandy Ortiz and I, uh, we, we started looking at, I said, this vertical kilometer thing has got me. I'm, I'm really curious about it, you know, <laughs> and, 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 uh, and what's the record? And, and then you find the record is, was at that time was just under 30 minutes. Right. And um, I'm like, wow, a thousand takes 30, 30 minutes to go a kilometer. You know, I can do a kilometer and, you know, under four minutes on the, uh, on a flat ground. Many, many of your runners can do it much faster, but it takes half an hour. So, um, and then we looked at the angle of uh, that. The records all seem to be set at, uh, at Fully in Switzerland. And, and it's an old, uh, what they call a funicular, a, a cog railway uh, line that was abandoned. And, and it's at 30 degrees. The average incline is 30 degrees. I'm like, 30 degrees. I love 30 degrees. It's, you know, the sine of 30, cosine of 30. Everybody knows this triangle, 30, 60, 90 triangle. So it's like 30 degrees. Yeah. And, and at first 30 degrees doesn't seem like that steep when you draw it on a piece of paper, but when you, incline your treadmill to 30 degrees. Remember that's 50%. That's not, uh, it's not 30%. It's, it's 50% It's 30 degrees. So that's the, that's where the record was. And we looked at other VKs, um, uh, around the world and found that, uh, the, they were slower. If there weren't really any that there's maybe one, I think in Italy, that's slightly steeper, and the records are not set there. And then there's a couple in the Western U.S. and Canada that are more gradual. So, um, yeah. So that study, that was really where we got our feet wet. And 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 we we had to make some. We had to start somewhere, right? And uh, we knew we could vary the angle. We could vary the angle and the speed. Or we decided we settled. Nicola was only here for six months, so we had to settle on something that was right. doable uh, because of his visa. And uh, and I said, well, let's set a vertical rate of ascent, which you guys use all the time, I'm sure. And and we set a, a vertical rate of ascent that that Mandy and 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 Nicola felt that we could have people sustain. And uh, and then we matched the vertical rate of ascent at different angles. So of course it at five degrees, you got to run pretty fast to do this vertical rate of ascent. And at 30 degrees and 35, I think we went to 40 degrees in that study or close <laughs> to it. So steep. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> just to, just to like a lot of people have forgotten high school geometry right now. Yeah. So the, I'm going to take a, like a real, a real world example that, that sure. a lot of listeners will will be familiar with, and Roger, you probably are familiar with having uh, lived in in the area for so long. The backside of Hope Pass on the Leadville Trail 100, which is the hardest part of the course, is about mm -hmm. a, at a 10 degree angle, and you were not putting this, people no. not 30 degrees, not 40 <laughs> degrees, 10 degrees, and everybody thinks that's really steep, and it is. It absolutely yeah. is. It absolutely is really steep. And if you look at any other normal trail setting, Devil's Thumb is probably like, I'm going to do the math in my head right now, probably about 8% or something, or sorry, not 8%, 8 degrees. Mm -hmm. You're studying people on slopes that are far steeper 
than any normal North American. I'm going to caveat that. Any normal North American trail. You go over to Europe, it's different because the trail's construction there is totally different. But you're looking on things at this treadmill that it's it's almost hard to comprehend because, especially for a North, a North American trail runner, because they just don't have that experience of actually, actually how steep it is. Yeah. Yeah. It If they're skiers, that can help uh, a little yeah. bit because a uh, I think a a blue a blue run is sort of like twenty degrees ish, and a and a and a black diamond, a double black diamond might be thirty degrees. And and if you stand at the top of that on skis, and you're not a really good skier, it's like whoa, it's it's, yeah, thirty thirty degrees is tough. Okay, so the <laughs> the the origin from Killian Jornet starting or Kelly and Jornet having a, uh, having a lecture at the Boulder running company and you attending it, you guys started, start to get into trail running. The first question you answer is you want to study things that you want to stay locomotion at 30 degrees. I'm going to fast forward a little bit through a few pieces of research and maybe we can kind of summarize it a little bit. One of the things that has started to come out of the lab is this notion of running or locomotion economy is different at those steeper grades or steeper angles. So we have this like performance construct in, in a marathon setting. And this is why I mentioned this earlier Mm -hmm. where running economy is like this hero. And you have published this uh, most recently with a lot of the sub two hour research Mm -hmm. where one of the things that we are trying to optimize the most in a high performance setting is an athlete's running economy. They're fairly tapped out on their VO two max. They're fairly tapped out on the fraction of their VO2 max that they can utilize throughout the course of the event. We want to take all of these other different things that impact the cost of running or running economy and see if we can optimize performance in that, in that way. And you can, you can fill in the gaps of that piece because you're, you're involved a lot in that, in that project. Um, but one of the things with, that when we start to move onto the trails and steeper centers is this notion of running economy being like a hero metric to indicate performance is not quite as correlative. And that's because right. the conditions are different. So why don't we start to like go through that a little bit and what your lab has found out about running and or look, and I'm using the word locomotion economy very carefully <laughs> because yeah. I know that sometimes at the steep grades, it's hard to say, is the person actually running? For sure. So, so yeah, we, we, uh, I was involved in the, uh, breaking two and, and, uh, Ineos and, and on a flat, I mean, almost exactly flat, uh, course, uh, running economy, it, given those other physiological variables are, are pretty fixed. Uh, running economy is something you can, you can play with, you can tweak, you might be able to optimize, get a little marginal gain on, um, and we assumed that that was the case for uh, the vertical kilometer, that, that what we were trying to figure out was what, what angle of the treadmill gives you this, uh, for a given vertical rate of ascent, which requires the least amount of oxygen, the least, the lowest, slowest rate of oxygen consumption, because um, that means you could go a little faster if, if that's an easy uh, rate of oxygen consumption for you. Um, and, and that those data point towards 30 degrees being the, the, uh, the, 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 the optimal angle if you want to maximize vertical ascent rate and that oxygen consumption is the limiting factor. Okay, so uh, that those are a couple of assumptions. And 
But I think it's pretty clear. It's not an assumption in VK or Everesting. The goal is get the most vert uh, in the shortest period of time. And, uh, you know, you, you have to sustain it. You, you can't be over your VO2 max. You can't be too far above threshold for too long, right? So, um can I just stop you for one second? Yeah. You just earned a whole lot of street cred with the listeners of this podcast by using the word vert. Uh, right. <laughs> yeah. I, I so think every, been... everybody now is like, oh, this guy, he is a trail runner because he used the word vert yeah. as opposed yeah. to some scientific jargon around it. So right. <laughs> I, I, wanted to, I wanted to give you some kudos for that. All right. It's partly because I, uh, I talked to Jackson Brill, uh, uh, maybe uh, on a regular basis. He's my, uh, he's my graduate student now. Okay. So, continue Roger. That's fine. So, uh, and, and I think Jackson used this recently. He, he did an Everest and he said, uh, he looked, you know, he had read our papers and, and, uh, now he has his own papers, but he said, okay, I should find the steepest, steepest incline I can find if I want to, uh, get my Everest in the shortest period of time. So, um, but the, the other, the assumption is that oxygen is limiting in steep uphill locomotion. And and that's probably not true. Uh, it's not the ultimate thing because, or not the only thing I should say. So, um, the, the people who are hold the world record for the 10,000 meters on a track don't hold the world record for the vertical kilometer and vice versa. The, the, the record holder for the vertical kilometer um, is, you know, they're a, a, a fine runner, uh, uh, but they're, they're not running 26 minutes for, for 10,000 meters on the flat. They have specifically trained a pretty, a, a, I've, um, I'm trying to remember the Swiss guy who's the, uh, uh, he raises cow, cows as well. He milks cows. Uh, he held the VK record for a while. Um, as uh, it's in my paper. Uh, anyhow, maybe it'll come to me, but, but he trains specifically every day after he milks the cows, he runs, he lives in the mountains, he runs up the mountain and then he runs down the mountain. Then he milks the cows, you know, at the middle of the day or whatever. He, I think he milked cows twice a day and then he runs up the mountain again. He doesn't do intervals. He doesn't do, uh, he doesn't go to a, a you know, a, a Mondo track and do two uh, hundreds. He's very specifically training for, for this. And, and that's because if you take a flat runner and you put them on a 30 degree incline, they don't get out of breath first. They say, Oh God, my calves are killing me. I, I can't sustain this. I, I, I'm, I'm getting local fatigue and, and that's what's going to make me stop. Or as we've done in a recent, learned in a recent paper, it may be the stimulus to switch to walking. And that by walking, you uh, change the timing a little bit and you change this, probably the, uh, the angles that the range of motion of the uh, calf muscles. Um, and so by all, our working hypothesis, Jackson's, Jackson Burrell's working on this for, for his master's thesis, the, the specific question of um, whether, we, whether we switch back and forth for walking and running in an optimal way, but, but, Anybody who experiences our treadmill or more fun out on a real trail that's super steep um, is that you, you're not necessarily out of breath when you switch to a different gate. It's, it's not the oxygen uh, delivery is not the only factor. And um, if the more, the greater oxygen uptake you can sustain 
for sure, that's going to improve your performance. But if, you know, most of us, it's hard to improve your maximal oxygen uptake, but it is possible to improve your strength, improve uh, your flexibility, uh, and probably there's some evidence improving your uh, connective tissue um, through specific training for, for uphills. So uh, I think that that's what these uh, Irv, no, it's, Urs Zimmerman, that was the guy who I saw the video of the, yeah. the cow, the dairy farmer in uh, in Switzerland. You know, he he he's very specifically trained. We when we did some of these thirty degree studies, we have contacts with a lot of uh, people who can run under thirty for thirty minutes for a flat ten k, and we'd bring them in, and they they you know they were not it wasn't a piece of cake for them. It was, it was brand new and pretty hard for them to, to do. So they had, there were, but then we had Mandy Ortiz's mom. I can't remember her name. Uh, Anita. 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 Yeah. She, um, she's, she lives in outside of Vail and, and, and Eagle County somewhere. And, and she runs a lot on steep uphills and, and she was doing much better on the, uh, on the super steep stuff than the, the flat, uh, fast guys. Um, you know, some yeah. of them were from CU NCAA team um, yeah. and, and they could run some very good 10 Ks <laughs> on the track, but uh, not up, a, it, not up a steep thing. So I think we talked earlier about how practical notes are important for your audience. They're, they're not going to go read, not going to go write an article necessarily. They do read articles, but um, uh Boy, the uphill stuff has emphasized to me how important specificity is. It's 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 such a weird activity that very few of us do on a regular basis. Um, it, it it it's super important for a steep uphill. Yeah, and so from a practical perspective, as a coach, here's what I took away when I saw that research. If, if I relate it to a marathon setting, we think about specificity in terms of the bioenergetics and the speed. So if you're going to go run a two hour marathon, two and a half hour mar- marathon, three hour marathon, you have to have the speed specificity to do that. You have to train at those speeds and you have to have the bioenergetic specificity. You have to train at those speeds and at that oxygen uptake, essentially. Sure. I think the what I took away from that is in the way that it influenced me in the, on the coaching side of it is the specificity component of trail running, running uphill and downhill and up different grades matters even more in that sport discipline. And so when we shift training, as we kind of go along the season, as opposed to a marathoner who their training might not really even change all that much in the last eight or 12 weeks on the whole. I mean, you can, mm-hmm. you know, okay, we're doing 1200 meter repeats instead of thousand meter repeats or something like that. We think that that's a, like a really marked change, but from a trail running perspective, I almost, I'm going to use the word kind of double down to like make a gross comparison, but I almost double down on the specificity component where it actually becomes so big that you kind of, you almost got your way from a training perspective to, to get on those grades and to do everything that you can to train for the different uphills that you're going to encounter on race day. Yeah. And, and there are also uh, uh, some people make a big deal about running being a skill. And and I can see different sides of that argument, but, um, but 
for trail running, there are absolutely specific skills that are not innate. And uh, so one of the things, one of the limitations of our treadmill studies, because we were measuring oxygen consumption, is we couldn't, uh, we didn't, people were unable to reach their knees with their hands um, and still have the mouthpiece in because the mouthpiece was sort of fixed. And uh, that's something that, that I do. That's something that lots of us do when you're on a steep hill is you, you bring in accessory muscles, your arms to push, to extend your knees. And, and then I think you said, Nicola, and you talked about the pole study and, and that's, that's just a, a more efficient tool to, to use your, to spread the effort out to your different arms, but it's not easy right? It's, it's using, using poles while running is, is a, is definitely a skill. And, and that was a limitation of his study was finding enough people who were skilled at using poles on, on, uh, uh, I should say our study because we, we, we co I co-authored on that. (laughs) Um, my main contribution was correct, uh, converting, uh, Italian English to American. Ah. English. uh, uh, he's, he's, uh, He's a great scientist and, and, uh, and his English is excellent, but, uh, not, not, it's, it's not as easy for him to write as it is for me in English. So. He was really, he was really good and very gracious. Uh, you should, you should listen to it afterwards. It yeah. just came out last, last week as we we're recording okay. this. Um, uh, he was very nervous about his spoken English in, in advance and it, it, it turned out great. But one yeah. of the things that we discussed in that, that is, re- that I think is really related to some of the things you're finding on the steep treadmill, just in running, uh, in running, uh, scenarios and, it's coupled with this notion that running economy or locomotion economy may not be as important in an uphill mm-hmm. setting is there are conditions where it is very steep and you're, you're, you're using poles where your economy is actually worse, but you might actually perform better because of these other aspects yeah. that are going on. Yeah. Yeah. That's that. Um, I mean, ideally, and, and on average, Nicola found that poles did improve the, the economy, but they were not running. Right. They were, they were walking. So, uh, and, and, and it was really steep too. It was he, so <laughs> I can't, I can't remember. Uh, so ours, definitely our treadmill was for sure the steepest in the world for a while. And then he built his, and I think, I think, uh, his is, uh, his definitely can go to 45. So I think we're, we're sort of uh, matched, you know, there's, there's two that are equally steep uh, and, 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 and you can't, you really can't go, you can't walk or run above 45 degrees. It's, it's just uh, ridiculous. So yeah, even for us, it's ridiculous. Well, and that's one of the things, I mean, one of the blessings that you have in Boulder there is you have a lot of really good athletes that can come in and they can actually try to run on yeah. these steeper grades, whereas a mere mortal like myself or you, it's like, there's no chance even at the right. slowest of speeds or even, yeah, even at the slowest of speeds, we'd be, we would be walking. Yeah. But let's get back to, the, I, I'm sorry, I diverged. It's fun yeah. talking with you, but uh, we want to convey some information to your listeners at least. Um, so optimizing economy is critical for a flat you know, attempt at two hours or two fifteen for the marathon or whatever. Um, absolutely critical. Um, but and hold and on, hold, hold on, hold on. 
let, let's like really quickly go over why that's so critical. Like why is optimizing economy in a road marathon? Cause we hear about this all of the time, like how important right. running economy is. Why is it so important in a road marathon setting? Okay. So it's, uh, uh, econ- running economy is the rate of oxygen consumption that a person consumes at a specified running speed. So let's make it Iliad Kipchoge. It, it, for him to run at 21 kilometers an hour or six meters a second, um, he, let's say he uses uh, 60 milliliters of oxygen per kilogram per minute, right? And that's the percent, that's a percent of his VO2 max that he can sustain for two hours. Uh, I'm a little off on my numbers because he's probably about 80 for max and 60, 80, but, but you, you get the idea. So yeah, let's yeah. just use number 60 because it's a nice, easy number. So if, um, if we could do something for Elliot so that he only required 59 milliliters of oxygen per kilogram per minute to run at that speed, then he wouldn't still run at that speed. He'd say, Oh, I can go a little bit faster, a certain, you know, 0.1 meters per second faster and be at that sustainable 60 milliliters of oxygen per kilogram per minute. So if you become more economical, it allows you to run at the same effort, but at a faster speed. So that's why it's, uh, that's why it's so critical. And in, okay. in addition to that, in a high performance setting, especially at the marathon, they're running at such a high percentage of their VO2 max yeah. There's nothing, there's like, you can only, you know, it's the estimates are anywhere between 85 and 90% of their VO2 max. Yep. There's nowhere else to go. Oxygen, oxygen is at such a premium. If you can reduce the cost of locomotion, and yep. like you said, they're still going to run it 87% or 89%. You just reduce the cost. So, right. You or, or you maintain the cost, but it allows you to go at a faster speed. Yeah, so exactly. If, if, if that's your performance metric, which it is in a flat marathon is how fast you can do it. Okay. Um, then that's absolutely, uh, the, the critical variable. Okay. I, and I wanted to go over that because that once again, not, not a lot of, uh, of the lay audience will be very familiar with it, but I, I think that because it's become so important in marathon running, we've automatically correlated it to ultra marathon and trail running. Yep. And I don't think that correlation correlation and the data shows this is quite as tight. And so that was going to be your next step. So now you got the floor again. <laughs> okay, sure. So I can't think of any situation for flat uh, level marathon uh, level marathoning where you would there's any advantage to doing something that worsens your running economy. I just there's there just isn't anything. Uh, the only extreme might be in temperature. No, even temperature, it's going to be better to, uh, to be more economical because you'll produce less heat. So um, it's, but let's, there are situations on steep terrain or longer distances where you want it, you could, you, you should probably sacrifice uh, the running economy uh, because it's not the limiting factor. So if uh, in a 800 meters, after an 800 meters, most of the runners are, are bent over. They're holding their knees. They got their hands on their knees. They're just like, 
they're completely out of breath. It's very clear that enter, that the, the rapid delivery of oxygen and, and the, they're maxed out their, uh, their glycolytic uh, and, and uh, uh, so-called anaerobic system, not so-called anaerobic systems are maxed out, right? Um, that's not the case. When you get to the top of a, of a really steep uh, mountain, uh, if it's not at extreme elevation, uh, it's, that's not, that's not why you are, are slowing down. It's not that you're completely out of breath in every situation. Sometimes it's that your calves are burning. Sometimes it's, uh, 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 that your quads are burning. It's, it's, it's not always the case, um, that, that you're so much out of breath, but you just don't have the, the local, uh, the localized endurance of the muscles to do it. And so, that gets back to the poles. One of the ways to get around the local calf limitation or quad limitation is to use accessory muscles. And uh, it may take a little bit more oxygen. It, it almost, in many situations, it does take more oxygen to use, use your arms rather than your legs. Um, but uh, your legs are not burning out. If you can, if you can spread the effort out to a greater muscle mass, uh, that can that can enhance performance, um, and and we actually know from really kind of not boring but uh, not at all athletic events in the laboratory is if we have a person ride a, a stationary bicycle that they pedal with their legs at fifty watts, and then we give them a hand ergometer, they use a lot more energy to to move the the hand ergometer at the same power output. So our arms are not as efficient at at doing. Uh, doing work, but, um, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's benefit. It can be beneficial to use poles because you spread the effort out, uh, to different muscles. And it, and it may be also well, we know that it is, um, on steep terrain, people switch between a walk and a run, uh, at a certain speed. And we know that one gate, except for where they, they, they cross over, many times people are choosing to alternate between a walk and a run, even though running uses more energy. Um, on a steep incline, up in, uh, for almost everybody who's listening to your podcast, um, up a really steep incline uh, beyond about 15 degrees, walking is going to use less oxygen. Okay? But at the same, at the same speed. So, um, but we don't always, and, and if you watch a race, you watch a video of a race, it's not that everybody is walking continuously, but they're alternating between walking and running. And, uh, that's because that, that's a, a really nice, uh, magnifying glass on this question that you raised. Do you always optimize economy? And the answer is no. In, in situations like steep trail running, steep, it probably is true for running up the Empire State Building too. Uh, steep, uh, steep locomotion. You can you alternate gates triggered by local fatigue factors, by by calf muscles, is where our focus has been lately. We think that it's the uh, the calf muscles. And th- so this question is going to be fascinating to a number of to a, a to the listeners, but anybody who's just picking up this podcast for the first time, because they all have the experience of being in a race or being in their local training run and everybody's going uphill and half the people around them are walking and half are running, but they're all going the same speed and they yeah. all have different respiration rates. 
right? So the yeah. heart rates are different. The rate of respiration is different. And I'm sure if we could take, you know, a magic magnifying glass and look at this localized fatigue that you were just mentioning, especially mm -hmm. at the calf, that would look markedly different as well. Yeah. Yeah. We've, we've looked at it in the lab where we have people, we set the speed, we set the incline, we put, um, uh, electrodes on the skin surface above their muscles. We measure what's called electromyography. And, uh, and we can see that um, th there's a lot of, there are really some important differences between walking and running on steep incline. And, and one is that it's uh, uh, even though you don't leave the ground uh, during steep uphill running, it's still running. It's bounce. It's a bouncing movement. Okay. And um, I think everybody uh, many of your listeners will know that when you run, your step frequency is, is faster. And that's a pretty clear, uh, uh, dis discrete change. You know, you're, you're walk, 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 run, 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 walk, walk, walk. It, it, it's, a, it's not a gradual, you don't gradually change your frequency when you change gates. And, and humans don't, don't blur the gate. They, it's you, you, if you, if we ask our subjects, are you walking? we say, would you please walk? And would you please run? They, they, they don't have any hesitation. They, they quickly switch, they, you know, to a faster frequency when we ask them to run. And um, so, so there are important differences and what that may do at the local fatigue level, we don't have super good evidence or, uh, of this, but um, we'd like to, um, is it may affect blood flow. So if you are uh, running, there's less time uh, in between contractions of your calf muscles. All right. Um, and, in, uh, and in walking, there's a longer swing phase. There's a longer time where your, your, your muscles are not active. And that may be important for reducing uh, or, or minimizing the, fatigue, the local fatigue is uh, allowing the blood to uh, reperfuse the muscle. Because when you're when you're sorry, I used one of those uh, twenty dollars words. Uh, perfused means uh, <laughs> allow blood flow. So if you are contracting your calf muscles and and your foot's on the ground uh, in a run, uh, the blood's not getting to your muscle for that time when the muscle is contracted. Uh, it, it's just not able to overcome the, the the physical pressure of the muscle contraction. So the blood is kind of surging into your muscles when your foot's not on the ground. And um, we, uh, I say we, this is probably just me. I think that uh, an active, a good area of uh, research would be to look at blood flow, the pulsatile nature of blood flow in, in walking versus running. Um, I don't really even know how to do that, but there are things called Doppler flow. Yeah. Uh, there, there are, devices that can measure blood flow in uh, from the outside. So mm -hmm. let's hypothesize this for just one second. Okay. So if part of the advantage of switching from a run to a walk is that the way that you're using the muscles is so markedly different. And part of the way that that shows mm -hmm. up, as you mentioned, your, is your cadence. So some of the practice that I see, I don't necessarily agree with this, but some of the practice that I see out with trail runners is they want to increase their walking step frequency to the hmm. extent that they're trying to match or get as close to their run step frequency as possible 
because that's the form of locomotion that they're the most used to. And when I look at that and knowing this, this localized fatigue phenomenon that's happening that might be alleviated by switching between those two modalities, I say, no, I actually want it to be different. I don't want to try to contrive the walking modality to be close to the running modality because there's something within switching between walking and running that is beneficial to performance. That's a total hypothesis that I've had just coming up with the research. But what, so what do you think about it? Having been a part of all this? Yeah, that's, uh, we have not done that experiment. It would, uh, uh, well, Maybe I can't say we, but uh, she she turned out to be my PhD student. But a, a woman named uh, Chris uh, Christine Snyder was a, a master student uh, here at Colorado with my uh, my wife Claire Farley, and they did a study of uh, uphill running, uh, really modest inclines by the standards we've been talking about today. Um, but they had people run at different frequencies on an incline, and just like we do on the level, people chose and found their uh, energetically optimal uh, stride frequency in running. Um, I don't know of anybody who's done that. Uh, It's been done for walking as well on the level. um, And on the level, people choose, uh, they find their optimal step frequency for walking. And so I don't think it's a pretty small logical step to think that that's also going to be the case for uphill walking. And that um, I think that may be a, that may be a, a, not a good, good way to spend your training time. Uh, That would be my guess. You may be able to switch the optimum to a faster frequency. The body may adapt to that, but I don't think that it's going to be a lower optimum. It's not going to be a, it's not going to save energy. Um, that I I mentioned earlier, well, you mentioned earlier that I've studied a lot of animals and, um, and I just recently, I said that in, in, I specified in humans and, and that is that humans use discrete gates and don't blur them very much. Um, and, and that's true of in most situations for animals, but we, we found, uh, my wife, uh, Claire Farley, was a scientist. Uh, we, we met in the lab and so on. Anyhow, she's done a lot of locomotion experiments back in the, you know, but not for the last 15 years because she, she had health problems. But anyhow, Claire, um, we were interested in why horses and, why, and dogs, why four-legged animals switch between gates. And the first thing uh, we did was we put a little weight vest on the, on the dogs. And um, what the dogs did was they, we, we used the word slur. They kind of, they blurred the gate distinction. They, 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 they continued to trot, but it was not like the way they were trotting without the weights. Yeah. The horses, the ponies, when we put weights on them, they immediately uh, switched to a gallop and spread the force out over uh, more legs uh, at a time. Um, but, uh, but the horses, I don't know. I, I don't know whether it's all training and selection or what, but horses are very discreet. They choose. It's either this gate or that gate, yeah. this gate or that gate. There's no in between, but dogs. And I suspect some other uh, four-legged animals, perhaps smaller four-legged animals um, blur that gate distinction. And it, and it may be for a good reason. Um, I don't know. Um, and it may be trainable. You know, if, if you take your dog backpacking, sometimes people can't have the dog carry uh, some extra load 
um, and they may adapt to it. Um, but boy, I don't think, I don't, I can't see the advantage of, uh, I can see a disadvantage of using a high step frequency in walking. And that is that, um, when you're, when you're walking, your leg is relatively straight and advancing it, swinging that leg forward, um, that internal work to swing your leg forward is going to go up dramatically if you increase the, the frequency. So, uh, boy, I'd be very surprised if that was advantageous. Yeah, I um, keep coming back to this strategy. Uh, and I used to be a, a form wonk, you know, in my mm-hmm. early coaching days where we'd look at, you know, slow motion, you know, tapes and try to, yep. you know, okay, let's try to optimize your foot placement and all this other stuff. And a lot of that is my track and field background, like working with sprints and jumps and hurdles and stuff like that, where that type of technique is actually really, really valuable. But I keep coming back to in a, in a running situation. I don't try to change much unless it's really egregious. Um, I just don't, I don't even mess with it because you know, there's always that, there's always that period that they're worse. We know that much. Whether or not they can get better, I I just don't. It's it's not consistent. I guess is what I'm saying. It's like sometimes they get worse and they stay worse. Sometimes they get worse and they might get a little bit better. Yeah, I I have a very well equipped laboratory still, and and yet the sensors that uh, we have in our body are are substantially better than the uh, and the processing power that we have for those sensors are is still substantially better than than uh, what we have technologically. But but let's go back to this person or or this uh, these people who are training for uh, uh, high step frequency in walking. I, I think they may be on something, and and that is that runners don't train for walking very much. Yeah, and and uh, that makes a lot of sense if you're uh, Iliad Kipchoge or uh, Galen Rupp or somebody who wants to run a ten thousand meters or uh, a marathon at which is at a crazy fast pace. But, um, but if you know that you're going to do a hundred K or a hundred mile or, or, or what, or a very steep, even a, you know, a 15 K that's got a lot of steep terrain. Um, it seems like we should be going out for a walk rather than going out, say we're going out for a run. I mean, you could still say to your friend, Oh yeah, I'm going running, but don't run, right? <laughs> go, go to a steep, uh, a steep hill and, and, and train that walking. It, it comes back. Um, you know, I, I can't help but be a professor, even though I'm retired. Right. And, and the biggest thing I, I did the same thing when I was a student, but the biggest mistake that students do is they study what they already know. Mm-hmm. They have a test coming up and they're like, Oh, well, this is, I like this stuff. I'm going to study this stuff. And it's like, you already know that stuff. What you should be studying and working on is your weakness. Mm. And athletes don't, we're, we're, we, we do the same thing, right? We say like, ah, oh, I really like long gradual runs in the forest. I, I, I hate going and doing <laughs> intervals. And, and yet that may be that working on your weakness is um, is probably the smartest use of your training time. Uh, it, it's where there's the, there's the most potential for gains, and uh, and yet very few people train for for uphill walking for steep uphill walking. And, and yet that's that's you get the time that you can gain on the uphills uh, is is huge compared to the time that you can gain on the on the level or, or even even more so the downhill, but I, I think downhill training is, is uh, specificity of downhill training is, uh, 
is, is super important. We haven't we haven't done much on downhill running in my lab, I have to admit. Well, and the the uphill uh, component of it, or the walking component of it, I always have a hard time uh, getting getting buy in with athletes on that because they think it's too easy. But what hmm. I what I do is I just show them how much they're going to be walking during a particular race. And most of the time they're f- absolutely flabbergasted. It's on the order of five or even 20 fold what they thought. And the exercise that I take them through, I'm like, okay, how much do you think you're going to be walking during whatever Leadville trail 100 yep. Western States, whatever. And they say, ah, oh, maybe an hour or something like that. And then it ends up being like eight or 10 or 12, depending wow. upon the speed hours. They're, com- they're completely wrong. And so that's the first step that I take. In fact, one mm-hmm. of the things that I'm trying to organize right now, maybe I can cajole some enterprising master student out there to help me out with this, is mm-hmm. to see how much running and walking there is across different finisher times for some of these major ultra marathoners. I have that data set in my you know, in my wheelhouse because it's mm-hmm. something that I that, that I track a lot, but I don't have it outside, so I can't you know, I can, it's my own N of one, yep. but most people, when I go through that exercise with them are just absolutely stunned at how much walking they're actually doing, particularly at the, at the hundred mile distance. And then we translate it into training because I, you know, you and I've gone through this before with the previous edition of the book, I view it as different, almost different sports, right? They're connected by the cardiovascular system, but the way that the human moves through mm-hmm. the trail is markedly different. Yeah, it it's you monitor the gait with uh, from cadence, so you can yeah. you can yeah, look at your, and I just take a- Garmin. No, I think that's a perfectly good. Uh, in, in fact, it it may be yeah. We're, that's what uh, Jackson uh, and I are are using for his master's thesis. We're we're not using a a, a wrist. We're using a, a an inertial measurement unit at the at the hip um, at the waist, and I think that might be a little bit better, but. It gets it close enough. Like, of course, Absolutely. you don't have all Absolutely. the data, but if you just draw a line, you're like, okay, everything above here is run. And I actually have a piece of software that'll do that for me. I can say everything above here is running and everything below here is walking. Mm-hmm. And in all, I cannot, I can't, oh, throughout my entire coaching career, I've never had one situation where an athlete walked too much in training. Mm-hmm. Or, I'll use the word power hike because that's what trail runners like as opposed to walking. Right. <laughs> yes. Where they have done that too much in training and yet everybody does does running too much in training. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, yeah. If I think the math is a good way to do it because if you could improve, uh, if you could reduce their walking time, uh, the, their speed during the walking phase by 10% or 5%, it's, it's a huge number of minutes. Right. And, and yet, uh, you know, imagine a triathlete, it's, it's, it's almost like a triathlon, right? Yep. You could you imagine a triathlete who didn't train for swimming, uh, would be, would do terribly, yeah. right? They'd, they'd give up so much time in the swim. Um, and, and an ultra, an ultra, See, we can't call it an ultra power hike, but an ultra <laughs> marathon, an ultra, an ultra locomotion uh, is, is the same thing. If you don't train for the walking part, it's as dumb as not training for swimming in a triathlon. Yeah, 100%. Okay, we, we, we digress there a whole heck of a lot, which, yeah. is, which is totally fine and really, and, and really fun. Okay, so you've now passed on 
the lab and the tools contained within the lab to another fine group of individuals and kind of with your the legacy that you have largely uh, created there they're they're in very good hands i know there's a zillion things in your head of problems that you want to solve mm-hmm. and you only have we all only have a limited amount of time on this earth what do you think the the steep treadmill, where do you want it to go in the next few years? Like what problems can we solve that are specific to trail and ultra runners there? Uh, literally, it's going to go to the University of Massachusetts. So uh, I'm going to give it to my former postdoc, uh, Walter Hogkammer, who uh, has done a lot of, uh, we've collaborated on a lot of running studies in recent years, and he's just starting as an assistant professor. So uh, that's where it's uh, physically going to go. I think that we have some other, I was talking earlier about how tools are important and, um, and we have emerging better and better tools for studying local fatigue. So um, one of these you you, you and your readers or uh, your listeners may be familiar with is, uh, is uh, inf- uh, uh, MERS uh, infrared spectrum, intra infrared spectrum, spectrum of, Spectrometry? Uh, anyhow. I'm glad is, you got tied up at least once because I do that a dozen times on these yeah. things. So um, uh, I think these mirror sensors are, I, I know they're getting better. I just saw a paper by a, a physiologist uh, uh, who I really respect, Michael Joyner. His group um, is using these to, uh, to estimate blood flow and, and to measure oxygenation of uh, local uh, in local muscles. And, um, We've also, so that's a, that's a really important tool that, that is going to uh, expand. The other tool that um, I saw, I saw probably in uh, like 1995 was uh, ultrasound, uh, small sensors that can go on the muscles and measure the actual length change of the muscle fibers during an activity. And um, those work remarkably well for superficial muscles like the ones that are most critical here the the gastrocnemius and the soleus is the are, are the key muscles and where this this technique works really well um, so understanding what the muscle fibers are doing in the different gates um, those are two tools a third tool uh, we've used conventional electromyography emg which involves putting two relatively big electrodes kind of like heart rate electrodes on the muscle on the skin over the top of the muscle. And that's probably um, equivalent to going out uh, in a shopping mall and saying, asking two people who they're going to vote for and, and can conclude that uh, there that's, that's a good survey, right? It's, it's, and and so we know this, we know that conventional electromography has not been, uh, it doesn't tell us everything that we want to know. And, um, there are grid electrodes now. My colleague Roger Anoka uh, has adopted these uh, wholeheartedly, and it and it, it instead of just having two electrodes over the skin over a muscle, he'll have a you know a hundred electrodes and be able to uh, to uh, get a much more representative picture of what the muscle fibers are, uh, what the activity of the muscle fibers are. So. So I think those are new tools that will be uh, will be really helpful. But what you I think the the common th- the common theme between all of those is Local. is it's a more intimate view of what's going on at the neuromuscular level, muscular yeah. and or neuromuscular level. 
Right. And, and, and it's localized yeah. because uh, that, that's the, um, that's, that's, I think that's where there's a lot of action. Um, but the second thing that we haven't done uh, that I'd like to, I would have liked to, I don't know, maybe I'll get to collaborate with some, with Valter on this is, um, is the trainability of uphill economy. So we, there is not very, there's weak evidence and, and mostly evidence to the counter that you can, a person can improve their running economy on level ground by a substantial amount. Okay. They're the best counter example is Paula Radcliffe and, and Andrew Jones in the UK studied Paula Radcliffe from uh, I believe she was like 16 until 35 or something like that. And she did improve her running economy over that long period of time. And, and I think that's probably true um, based on our, our, we've studied really older people, people over 65 and their running economy is not, is not worse. If they've been lifelong runners, their running economy uh, and, and there's every reason to think that it should be worse, but it's not. So I think that it's probably, it is getting worse, but it's getting better at the same time. So it looks the same, right? It's, it's the aging process is not pretty, but, um, but running economy stays about constant. So, so that's what I was saying about level. I don't think there's, a, uh, it's not easy to change your running economy on the level by a substantial amount. There's some marginal gains, but we know that these people like Urs Zimmerman and other vertical kilometer specialists, uh, it's not that they have the highest VO2 max in the world. And it, it certainly is something that they have very specifically trained their, their muscles for uphill locomotion. But the end result may be that they are more economical uh, at the specific skill of, of running up steep hills. Um, we didn't find that. At more, uh, my uh, grad school roommate Tim Briner and, uh, and I published a paper. Twenty-five, I think it was twenty-five. It might I have been thirty, this. 30 years this. after yeah. the data were collected, yeah. and we had both retired, uh, and we published his his master's thesis data, and that showed that uh, if you take an average, uh, you know, recreational runner who runs uphill, downhill, level, just without specifically thinking about it. Um, it's not that there are people who are specifically economical downhill runners or specifically economical uphill runners. But I think that if you take, if you, if we looked at some people uh, either, uh, it'd be easier to do as a cross-sectional just to look at first. And that is to get some really elite vertical kilometer athletes and see what their running economy is on steep inclines. And I bet that it's, I bet that it's better. Um, and, uh, and then the, the follow-up study would be to uh, take someone who's who you're converting from a, a level runner to a mountain runner, and and monitor their uh, their uphill economy over over a, a training year, uh, at least a year, and see if uh, uh, maybe, maybe you could do it more intensively. You might be able to do it in in eight weeks, just if they were focused on improving their uh, uphill running economy. So what would your hypothesis be that it's more trainable? Well, I mean, probably be more trainable in the flat condition if you're saying the flat condition isn't trainable at all or it could go down, I guess. Yeah. Um, I don't think we have a great explanation for it, but there's pretty strong evidence from a num number of groups now that plyometric training yeah. 
can improve run, a level running economy. Yeah. And um, I would say that although we typically think a plyometric is jumping off of a box and uh, down and back up, um, I think that probably uphill running is is a, is a pretty similar to a plyometric uh, kind of training um, because you are still bouncing. Um, and and that so I think that the strength um, the the muscle fibers are adapting to uh, operating at the uh, at an optimal length, um, and the connective tissue may be adapting as well. Um, I, I I can't really it's hard to get too far along speculating on a mechanism, but I think I think it's worth I think that would be I would pursue that that would be a, if I was a master student out there listening to this uh, podcast. Um, that that's, that's a worthwhile, uh, endeavor looking at the trainability of a very specific locomotor task and a novel, right. Uh, uh, locomotor task. The, the hard thing you always have with those types of studies is the novelty of it, right? Because yeah. you have to find enough subjects where that locomotor task is not novel such yep. that the trainability kind of fuddles with whatever else you're measuring. So maybe, maybe, uh, I should, I'm sure I suspect that Valter Hochammer will, will listen to this at some point. And, uh, <laughs> Valter, uh, Valter's from, uh, he was born in the Netherlands. And I think that might be what you should do is, is, uh, take a group of people who train in the Netherlands where there's zero Hills, except for the bridges over uh-huh, the canals uh-huh. and, and take them to the, uh, French Alps for eight weeks and, and, and run Hills, uh, or maybe even in Belgium, you could go to the Ardennes. There are some Hills there, but, um, I think, uh, and you may even be able to train them on a treadmill. Uh, I mean, I don't think that's, uh, that, that, that would be a quite reasonable. The, the advantage of a treadmill for steep uphill running is that you don't have to run downhill. Yeah. True. And so if you're trying to not injure someone, um, you know, uh, but, but then again, you, you can't, if you're going to run downhill in a race, you have to train downhill or else you're going to get hurt in the, as in the course of the race. So, but um, yeah, I think you you would want to, I think you're right to stack the deck. You want to get people who hardly ever run up a hill. (laughs) And uh, the, the study that Tim Briner and I did that Tim did that I helped him write up uh, uh, was in central Pennsylvania, which is, is about as mixed as you can get. There's, there's, it's not up, it's not really mountainous, yeah. but it's not flat. It's, it's just rolling Hills basically. Yeah. And uh, so people, those people were uh, perhaps the most generalist, you know, they, they, they were used to some uphill running, but not extremes and, and, but they weren't solo flat runners, solely flat runners. Yeah. yeah. My, my speculation on that is, and this is pure speculation. I can make pure speculation because I'm not a scientist and I can be wrong and I can be like, eh, you know, (laughs) we're we're wrong all the time. (laughs) But, uh, my, my speculation on the adaptation part of that is that it's very rapid. Meaning if you Hmm. took a, a runner from the Netherlands and you brought him over to the Alps and you saw how their economy and or their performance and uphill (laughs) conditions changed, my my hypothesis would be it would be kind of like an asymptotic curve, right? Where mm. where it improved very quickly early on and then sort of leveled off. Mm-hmm. It, the what where I'm coming to that from, or the rationale, the mechanistic rationale behind that, is that the initial 
uh, the, the, the initial driving force behind those adaptations are neuromuscular. And we know mm-hmm. that those adaptations are relatively quick to happen yeah. as opposed to the cardiovascular ones, like all the stuff that we talk about in typical endurance physiology, those take months and sometimes sure. years to, to, to pull off. And we see it a little bit in practice where we take runners that are from like the Midwest or they don't have a lot of elevation gain or elevation loss. And then we do a training camp with them in the Sierras or in the Rockies or whatever, and they get markedly better after just mm-hmm. one or two weeks and they're able to handle the elevation gain and elevation loss of whatever particular race. Yeah, uh, you're, you're probably right. Uh, uh, everything is uh, diminishing returns yeah. in training, right? Yeah. You get you get the big bang right away. 100%. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. All right, this is fun. I really appreciate it. We're going to let sure. you go. Um I don't have any, fo- normally I ask people like, where can they follow you? But I feel like you just want to go off into the mountains and go run and hike and things like that. <laughs> oh, uh, well, I, yeah, I, they, they, uh, I'm on Twitter. Um, but it's, uh, not a tremendously high percentage of science on Twitter. It's more, uh, sarcastic comments about, uh, uh, world events and, uh, things, but, uh, 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 whenever we publish a paper, a new paper, I always put it up on Twitter. So maybe that's uh, worthwhile. They, people would have to uh, uh, put up with my uh, uh, other comments. So uh, People are used to that now. You did have a few good zingers, though, uh, during Nike's Breaking 2 project and the Enios 159 project. I give you total credit for, for those code out because that did not come without controversy. That's not something that we talked about on this podcast. But I know that it was something <laughs> that caused any gray hairs that you had left to become gray. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I have uh, stuck my finger in the electrical socket on a couple of issues in, in recent decades. So the Oscar Pistorius was, uh, uh was one of those. And, uh, and the, uh, the vapor fly shoes was the second and, and then two hour marathon was a, was a third, but, uh, um, uh, I've been lucky enough to, to be at the right place on those. And, and, uh, uh you know, they're, they they are, in my opinion, historic uh, points in the in the history of running. So, uh, and and certainly history of running science. So I've been lucky to be at there. Those those uh, uh, crossroads. That's a perfect way to bring it full circle, Roger. Because one of the more influential. Uh, pieces of impact that you've had on me is when you brought a lot of the stuff from the Oscar Pistorius trial into the undergraduate class. of yours that I attended. And I knew at the time, because I was an older undergraduate student, that that would not, that that could have come with a little bit of controversy because of where it was at the state. But I appreciated it as a student and Mm -hmm. as a lover of history of track and field sports that you're able to do that. And so I would encourage you and other scientists out there to keep sticking your fingers in electrical sockets because it's entertaining it brings people to the table and ultimately if it makes people think it's going to make our understanding of everything better. Yeah. It it really, sometimes these things really focus our thinking. Absolutely. All All right. That's a good place to leave it. Thanks Roger. Appreciate it. Bye Jason.
All right, folks, there you have it. There you go. Much thanks to Roger for coming on the podcast today. Hope everybody got something out of that particular podcast to better meter your uphill efforts. Thank you to all the listeners out there. I appreciate the heck out of each and every one of you. And if you think that you are a good candidate for coaching, you want to raise your game up another level for any of your summer endeavors, go ahead, hit me up on social media. I would love to connect you with one of our coaches or maybe I'm the right coach for you and I'll coach you myself. Information on all of that is in the show notes as well as information on some of the more recent research that Roger uh, has recently produced. That's it for today, folks. As always, we will see you out on the trails.